Kapoor started drawing editorial cartoons for a student newspaper while attending the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. His work has since appeared in the Los Angeles Times, The Nation, The Village Voice, and The Daily Beast, among others. His first graphic novel, War is Boring, was a collaboration with journalist David Axe. It came out in 2010 from New American Library. More recently, his hysterical and pointed collection of comics entitled We Should Improve Society Somewhat came out in June of last year from Clover Press. We talk about both books at length here and also discuss Matt's current and upcoming projects, his decision to leave editorial cartooning and why he's pursuing different artistic goals in the wake of the nightmare of Trump's authoritarian populism. Incredibly, he's embarking on these new projects while doing all of the labor required to keep The Nib going. The Nib is an online daily comics publication and a crucial space for comic strip interventions on contemporary issues. It daily features political cartoons, graphic journalism, essays, and memoir. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. Matt expands on what it meant to enter publishing at what he calls the tail end of print, only to find that while social media seemed to be this new frontier for publication, it was basically impossible to make a living by being online. Now though, of course, using a hybrid method, the nib is showing how comics can thrive and find new audiences. Matt, perhaps more than most cartoonists, has had to deal with the volatile nature of contemporary political discourse and polarization. He's also witnessed firsthand the sort of state violence that organized protest can provoke. He describes in this interview the horrifying experience of being in Portland in 2020 and witnessing the realization of Trump's fascist rhetoric in the form of police and federal agents warring with protesters, as he puts it. But the interview ends on a somewhat more positive note, uh, perhaps somewhat unusual for this podcast. Matt feels that as a public, we've reached a level of political education where far more now understand the problems we face and routinely engage with the reality of a, quote, hell world. The challenge now would seem to be redirecting the frustration and resignation that people feel at not being able to act quickly or collectively into meaningful mass movements. Matt, welcome. Uh, it's so great that you were able to make the time. Uh, big fan of your work, um, both in terms of your cartooning, your graphic output, but also the work behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, my first question is about a shift in what you're doing creatively at the moment. So in April of this, you posted a piece on Medium announcing that after 18 years, more than 1600 political cartoons, you'd no longer be producing your own weekly comic. And so I wanted to ask about this decision. Like, why did you leave editorial cartooning um, in favor of nonfiction work or comics journalism? Well, you know, I've been drawing political cartoons since I was 19 years old and I'm 38 now. So nearly 20 years, you know, my entire adult life, uh, my entire career. And over time, you know, I, I started out uh, being very interested in all kinds of comics since I was a little kid, um, you know, superhero stuff. And then as I got older, more indie stuff and then nonfiction stuff. And I only came to political cartoons because I got very political in the aftermath of 9-11 and the run-up to the Iraq War and fig uh, had things to say about it and found 
political cartoons a good vehicle for, for doing so. And I, I got really into the form and everything, but I wouldn't say I started out with, uh, in, with strips, comic strips or editorial cartoons being the primary reason I was drawn to comics. And, and so as time has gone on, the desire to do other kinds of comics has never really gone away, you know, doing graphic novels or even more mainstream type of comic books. And after the Trump administration and the pandemic, you know, I was really burnt out on politics. Uh, everything is just so bad all the time. I felt like I was essentially saying the same things over and over. And, you know, I wasn't sure that I wanted my entire career from the age of 19 to whenever I die to just be doing political cartoons. So I just decided to finally, um, finally go for it. Uh, you know, I also run the nib, which is most of my work week. It's really time consuming. I have two kids, two young kids. The youngest was born right well in January of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. My life is just really busy and exhausting. And I, and I came to the conclusion that if I ever wanted to do anything else artistically, that something had to give. And so those are the reasons why I quit the strip. I interviewed Durf Bachter uh, for this for the podcast, and he talks about his own transition from a weekly strip into these long -term pieces that now have gained him uh, a certain level of like authority within the comics world. Um, even you know adapting his book My Friend Dahmer into a film. So I you know I'm excited about what you're going to produce. And you know Jason, uh, yeah, sorry, you go ahead. Oh no, thanks. And yeah, I had actually talked to Durf about this ahead of time. I kind of called a lot of cartoonists I know, especially ones like Durf who had actually done this and just uh, tried to trying to walk myself up to the line so that I could cross it because it's such a big deal to do when you've when you've done nothing else. I mean, I, I've met my weekly deadline, you know, th through all nighters and, you know, even though it's I'm a cartoonist and I have a career and appear successful and stuff. It's just, it's all, it's still something that's kind of done on the back end of, you know, daily work and staying up late to get it done. And I, I, once you're in, you're, you're used to doing that. It's uh it's almost hard to stop. And then now that I stopped, you know, I couldn't even imagine having to do a comic next week. I mean, that, that schedule is just really grueling psychologically and, um, doing a big graphic novel the way Durf is and everything. I mean, that's hard too. I did one of those, but it's, it's a totally different <laughs> way of approaching work, I guess. And, uh, and I'm kind of excited to, to do it eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I, I do plan to write and draw my own work and in, in the, in the way that Durf and others do, but really I'm writing uh, a lot of comics right now. Maybe not a lot. I'm writing some comics right now. And, uh, my hope is to kind of get into that a little bit because I don't I don't really feel like I have to draw everything that I'm interested in or that I want to create and um, actually would be quite time consuming and hard for me to do so. Mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting, like this idea of being addicted to a routine, even if it's like grueling because it's familiar. Um, and, you know, like you're you're in this place where you as you say, like you're crossing a line and changing that. Um, and, and, you know, it's being kind of reported on because the, the nib, um, has a certain kind of like status, uh, in the indie comics 
world. You know, Jason Vondersmith wrote this article for the Portland Tribune last year uh, talking about how the nib was effectively dropped in 2019 by its parent company, First Look Media. Yeah. Uh, but the, lib, the nib lives on primarily because of your work to preserve it and perpetuate it. And I wonder if you could speak to your original vision for the nib um, and how you figured out the like technical and logistical details of running the site, you know, the print magazine, all of its social media tentacles, like how did you get to that point where you had those skills? Well, I guess I, you know, started out from the position of being a lifelong freelancer who has come up in a media, media ecosystem in which you're responsible for figuring out how to manage everything in your career from, you know, marketing to printing to shipping, um, you know, asking for money online, doing Kickstarters. That's the world that I came into, kind of the tail end of print. The rise of, of social media um, is, is really what made my career or what well, allowed me to bridge it to the next to the next phase, I guess, because there really wasn't money in being online at first. There was this there was a it's kind of hilarious now, but there was a lot of arguments between like old print cartoonists and then young web cartoonists about what the future of the medium was and whether you should give your work on away online for free and then try to make merchandise or put a tip jar or whatever. And uh, now you now you actually can make money online. Um, and the nib is kind of a using some of those models using like the web comic model. That kind of sounds silly. I mean, really, it's just using a traditional publication model, but uniting a bunch of different uh, people, creators in this case, cartoonists under one umbrella, and calling it a publication. Uh, I, I thought I could do that because there wasn't actually a home for most political cartoons, particularly the kind that I was drawn to, which, you know, used to be called alt weekly cartooning, but it's not really apt anymore since alt weeklies are have have also kind of collapsed. Um, but more modern political cartoon styles that aren't like the traditional old school cartooning those places those people never really had a home they didn't have staff jobs they a lot of them were you know really uh well they they promoted themselves on social media and they had followings and they took to the online world really well whereas a lot of the people who had st comfortable staff jobs just didn't have a need to do that um and so you know i thought that by bringing in all the types of, types of cartooning that I liked, um, political car cartooning, nonfiction cartooning. I guess those aren't all the types of cartooning that I like, but they're the ones that um, spoke to, you know, what I wanted to do with my work and with other people's work, which is talk about the world, uh, politics, issues that matter through comics. And so political cartooning, it was kind of like, saving it or creating a space for it to survive and live and to find all these people doing it under one house. And then with nonfiction cartooning, it was more of like promoting a new kind of cartooning that really hadn't, hadn't uh, when we started like eight years ago, was far less prominent than it was now. You know, of course there was Joe Sacco and everything, but like, you know, Nate Powell and Durf and 
hadn't come out with books and Sarah Glidden might have come out with her first book by then I forget but you know it was in the it was really in the early stages of uh so so I, I really wanted to kind of push that and like I you know had a long-standing interest in doing non-fiction cartooning myself but then I ended up not actually doing all that much of it because I'm just running the nib the whole time yeah this is the thing and so like it your your commission to basically preserve some like space at what you call the tail end of print where print is like it's not dead but it's it seems like it's constantly ending and that becomes like in a sense your you know main um political like imperative is to create this home for political cartooning um and in that home in that creation of like a, a space for incubating this this style of communication um, you know, you talk about like in that in that uh, Vandersmith piece, you talk about how the indie comic world is left leaning and that you're explicitly running a publication with a point of view on things like equality, social justice and climate change. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I really um, picked up on is this idea that you are not interested in hearing from the other side. You know, to me, that's refreshing that you basically admit mm -hmm. that you have a commitment to providing a kind of comics archive that conveys a certain like clarity on issues without feeling compelled to compromise by appealing to notions of like balance. I, I struggle as a podcaster and, and like teacher because I don't want to shut down the conversation with students or listeners who kind of can't go to a progressive place or accept that maybe capitalism has some pretty destructive effects. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think it's like, liberating on some level to just have a platform of your own where you can do that sort of politically independent curation of content like why is that important yeah you know it's it's not i guess i don't really want to uh create a publication for everyone and i, and I don't i don't mind just having a focus of of it being left-leaning i mean i i wish that there was a bunch of different comics publications so if somebody wants to make a conservative one they should um you know we did run one conservative cartoonist for a little while in the early days and i think most of the readers probably hated him and i think especially online it's it's actually kind of almost impossible to uh to do this stuff because i mean even even running things that span the, the liberal to left spectrum i mean you have uh people on the left who really hate things that are more centrist and liberal and people in the uh the center who really despise the left in a lot of ways so i mean we found a lot of I, i've had a lot of problems with that stuff mainly around election coverage type stuff like whenever i would be in an election period i i always hate this i always hate them because you know doing work um where you're attacking the candidates always alienates people so you know if you're going after joe biden from the left um people don't want you to do that because then they'll say you know you're helping trump and so it, it, it's even kind of volatile to just have a left-wing publication right uh i i'm not interested in really having conservative voices arguing for their positions anyway because i just i fundamentally disagree with them so strongly but i don't even if i wanted to i i don't think i would be capable of having a sustainable publication uh in that way like i think it would just you know alienate readers and they would say i don't want to support this 
Yeah, and it's super tricky. I mean, it's like a, you know, it's a difficult question. Uh, you, you know, balance is something that is seen as like, it, this is the thing, like kind of incontestable notions of neutrality and so on. But um, I think now more than ever, in some ways, that position of neutrality is itself a position and kind of like yeah. a, like a, <laughs> like a problematic one, right? Like to to stay in that state of like ambiguity regarding these like life or death questions um, is irresponsible in certain ways, I think. Um, yeah, and, yeah, you know, it's not too hard to really the, the it, it doesn't end up being too hard to construct a publication around uh, around this because like you, you mentioned, you know, almost the entirety of the indie comics world is very left-leaning now, I mean, I don't know if I can even think of <laughs> any or many conservatives. They're probably not uh, sticking their neck out too far. Like no, the, yeah, the uh, maybe if there was a, a a bigger, if there were more cartoonists, there was a much larger ecosystem and many more publications supporting it. We would see a lot more ideological diversity, and then you could have you know the nib or whatever. Then you could have a version of it that's more like the Atlantic, and then you could have, you know, your right-wing site. But there just isn't enough cartoonists, political cartoonists to ever warrant anything like that. Um, so so it doesn't happen, you know, as it is. It's like the, when I first came up in cartooning and like the small, you know, indie comics, small press scene, or when I say small press, I mean like small press expo, like what is being put out by Fantagraphics, Drawn and Quarterly, Top Shelf, that type of thing. You know, the big guys, we were all guys. When I was coming up, it was like Craig Thompson and Chris Ware and Daniel Klaus. And now it is a lot of, you know, younger people, tons of queer and trans cartoonists. Everybody's, you know, very political and left wing. So it's it's not really, that's the pool that I'm, you know, drawing from now. And it's, so it's not too hard to come up with uh, a lot of left wing voices. Sure. And it sounds like what you're colliding with is like an internal division within the left, which is really interesting, too. And I've seen that move to kind of radicalize to some extent or diversify publishing at even the, you know, the, the highest levels, as it were. Like these are prestigious publications. Right. And they are moving toward, um, you know, more diverse voices. I think the Now series from Fantagraphics is evidence of that. Um, but, yeah. you know, I, I wanted to kind of switch gears and talk about um, War is Boring, your book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, the full title is War is Boring, Bored, Stiff, Scared to Death um, in the World's Worst War Zones. Um, and it's it's a book that I found incredibly interesting. Like, it's it's a story. It is not a polemic, right? You co-authored this with um, yeah. David Axe. It, it, you know, the big difference with this book is that you're not authoring it, you're illustrating it. And so I wonder, like in thinking back to that book, how close you feel to the book's messages, ideas, and stories, and if you generally feel like you develop a personal investment in the things that you're illustrating. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's I uh, illustrated that so long ago now. I mean, I forget what year it came out, 2011, maybe 2012, or before. I can't, I honestly don't even know. When 20, you do something 2010, like that. 2010. Okay, yeah. yeah. So now it's been 11 years. I mean, I haven't read it, um, certainly not since it came out. I don't know if I read it in its final form or not. I, th I think the last time I probably read it was 
a PDF, you know, sending it to press, making sure all the copy was right. Like you spend so much time on something like that, you know, looking at the script, spending hours on the pages. I, I have no ability to sort of read, read it objectively or know what it's like to read it or, um, you know, I don't really have an interest in going back and rereading my old work necessarily. So, you know, I know that I got into it because um, I'd met David at a uh, comic convention and he had done a previous memoir called War Fix that was similar in tone and it was about his becoming a war correspondent uh, when the Iraq war started. And, you know, I just, I, I mean, I had a lot of interest in the, the post 9-11 uh, landscape of, of, of wars that we were waging. Really, a lot of my earlier work is, is all about it. And um, even though, you, like you said, his, his is not really a polemic um, and it is not really focused on the people in these places necessarily. It's about his experience as a, as a war correspondent. Um, you know, I still, that, that was the type of work that I was gravitating toward and, and wanted to do. And, and he wanted to collaborate with me. And I, you know, I didn't have um, any ideas for a nonfiction graphic novel at the time. So it was a, it was a good opportunity for me. You know, I was like, I don't know, mid, 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 late twenties when we uh, probably signed a, a book deal with that. Um, you know, as for the message of the book, you know, I, I guess it, de I guess it depends, you know, I think that what message you draw from the book depends is what I mean. You know, there's, there's the text and then there's the subtext to it. Like David doesn't have an explicitly anti-war position that he advocates for in the book, uh, which, you know, would be my position. But I think, uh, I don't know how people can, you know, read this stuff about the world and not come to those conclusions, though I know that a lot of people do. I think that, you know, David wrote that book. Um, he has an almost cynical worldview in the book. I mean, I think that he wrote it, and, and the book is basically half about this, about his, you know, exhaustion with his kind of addiction to being a a war correspondent and seeing all this trauma and how it affects him and asking himself what he what is it that he's addicted to and you know is this does this change anything and i don't think that the book has any uh, clear answers about that but you know i think he wrote it directly from that place that he was afterwards and um now it's 10 years later i mean i haven't been in touch with him uh, for a while but i know that he's he's not hopping around war zones anymore he's like directing uh, cheap horror films. So, you know, maybe he's, uh, he's in a better place and he would have a, a whole different take on it. I don't know. I don't even know. Yeah. I mean, it's worth kind of thinking about, you know, and, and obviously, like I say, it's, you're, you're not responsible for the, as it were, the messages in that book, but it, it allowed you to kind of, um, you know, in some ways develop artistically. And I can see you in those pages um, you know, as Noah Van Skyver puts it, flexing artistically, like there are specific moments. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you're also responsible for trying to uh, illustrate the the sort of trajectory of David's thinking in that book. Like the beginning is this 
you know, kind of open romanticizing of war. There's a lot of that, you know, this sense that like war is something just thrilling in which you get this unparalleled experience of being alive when you're close to death. But then it, you know, the end of that book arrives at a very different conclusion about war, that it's, it may be something fundamental to human nature or something totally external, um, an aberration, as he puts it. Um, but it starts by asking these questions. And, you know, there's like one line in the book that really stood out that I want to ask you about where somebody who's actually on the ground experiencing the situation says, occupation breeds desperation, desperation breeds violence, violence breeds corruption, corruption, corruption breeds instability, and instability means we have to intervene. Because um, this is where we're at, you know, a decade later is, you know, yeah. an intervention of 20 years in Afghanistan has completely failed. Um, and you have people like Bernie Sanders, you know, who are icons of the progressive left, you know, occupying sort of a similarly ambivalent position about what the U.S. was doing there. Like he's, he said recently, no one he knows is a fan of the authoritarianism of the Taliban, but there are equally no people in his ranks that support intervention. And so it's like, what do you do with that impasse? Is there a way theoretically for something like comics journalism to navigate it and expose the hypocrisies latent in it? You know, I, I'd love, I'd love to think so and say yes. You know, it'd be a, it'd be a great world if, uh, if, if that were true. And, it, and I mean, I think it is to an extent, right? Like anything that you create that sheds light on the, the, uh, on the world, and its problems can help. You know, sort of push things along. I mean, that's how I've always viewed my work and wanting to talk about, you know, important issues is like trying to affect the discussion in really small ways obviously one comic or one graphic novel isn't going to change the world i don't i don't know that comics has any uh special ability to do that i mean i love comics as a medium that's how i think and that's how i want to tell stories but you know i could i can't say that a graphic novel is more affecting than you know a good documentary or a good piece of journalism Right, like that's just the the medium that I uh, that I'm drawn to. So, you know, I don't know that comics has any special ability to do it, but you know, maybe. And you know, I love that you kind of take that position because in the academy in the university, I I do find that like comic studies as like a subfield of a field. It has this weird obsession with like almost novelty, mm -hmm. right? With the uniqueness or singularity of comics as a form of communication. Um, but yeah, like you, you like other comics, a, a cartoonist I've spoken with, um, you know, express this like, you know, sort of debt almost to a documentary, or at least, I mean, this is how Box Brown talks about his own comics, mm -hmm. that he's like drawing a lot from documentary. And, you know, like you're trying to affect the discussion. One of the ways that you're trying to affect the discussion in War is Boring is through, I think, the representation of violence. You know, Durf is doing it in, in the same way in Kent State. Mm -hmm. And it's something I've thought a lot about in relationship to comics as a form of communication. Like, it's different from documentary, uh, where you, you actually are confronted with, like, there's a new uh, documentary on the Attica prison uprising, for example. There you're confronted with the real violent consequences of a a form of state violence right and the difference is that uh those are real bodies actual victims being shown and there's a risk of re-traumatizing those who have already suffered and i think a risk of desensitizing audiences to trauma if you know that real footage of violence isn't framed appropriately when you put together your images of like i, I think about this one panel in particular 
uh, where you depict an attack on an armored vehicle in Afghanistan, you're making choices about how to de depict um, a really sensitive subject. Like you depict a dismembered child in that scene. And I wonder what sorts yeah. of ethical or political dilemmas you, you faced in making those kinds of cho choices. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I know that that was, that was in the script. So it's definitely, you know, what David intended to show. And I think that it is about showing, you know, the horrors of this conflict and, and what it actually does to people. And I know that, you know, you can convey the same thing with off-screen violence or, you know, showing it in different ways. Uh, trying to remember how we were thinking about it then, though, like 11 years ago, or more, really, but probably drew it 13 years ago because it takes so long to draw these damn things. That's one thing that, that really cuts against uh, <laughs> comics as a medium for journalism. I mean, it takes kind of right. too long to do do something about it. So you have to really, you know, Durf doing Kent State works out well. but Yeah, it's exactly terrible strain on the wrist to try to keep up with yeah, this news cycle. <laughs> yeah, you can't do anything that's too pressing. Um, but... Yeah, you know, I mean, if I was drawing that book today, I mean, I might be, I might be a little more worried about that. I, I'm not sure, honestly, because I, I do feel like we have to show these things sometimes and people are not confronted enough with the results of, of these wars that, you know, they support, they support casually, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11 and then it's a conflict that lasts for 20 years that they basically have no connection to or, or even knowledge of. I mean, I don't think most Americans know the, f the first thing about Afghanistan, what languages they speak, can't name many cities, really just don't know much about it at all unless you know someone who's served there maybe. Um, so, you know, but like you were talking about with the, the Attica documentary, which I don't know about, but I really would be interested in, um, you know, framing it appropriately is also right. I don't just think that throwing things in people's faces necessarily doesn't doesn't convince them. Otherwise, uh, it would be a lot easier to turn people against war. And yeah, I mean, that question of framing comes up in one panel from uh, your book, your more recent book, We Should Improve Society Somewhat. Brilliant title, by the way. We Should Improve Society Somewhat. Um, like this, this like ironic appeal for just like meager reform is so funny. Uh, in the panel, uh, you use your classic cartoon rendering of Donald Trump, uh, but you also use like so you use Trump and also uh, a speech in which Trump basically claims that protesters don't face any level of violence today, and so on. And but you superimpose that on top of actual images of like you know, uh, iconic images of, you know, state violence, one of them actually being uh, the the photo yeah. of a protester laying on the ground uh, after the massacre at Kent State. Um, why in that panel did it make more sense to just uh, include the photos, right? Images have changed struggles over time. You know, having that actual archival like image is politically transformative. Do you remember what your thought process was when making that specific point about Trump's hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah, I do. It was, um, I'm 99% sure that comic ran before he was elected because he was campaigning and talking about people disrupting his rallies. And, you know, in the old days, 
they hauled him out on a stretcher and he was saying, you know, he paid the legal fees of someone if they punched a protester and, and these kind of things. And uh, I think even for those of us who were paying close attention, the last four or five years have really become this blur of, you know, outrage and constant offense over all of these horrors that have been going on and just, you know, Trump's constant tweeting and, and, and insanity. But back then, there were far less people who really admitted that this guy was who he was telling us who he was, right? Um, I mean, even his supporters, there's always a level of plausible deniability with what he's really advocating for, or what he's saying. Even if he's saying explicit things like punch a protester in the face, you know, when he's saying they're not consequences for protesting anymore, or in the old days, we used to do this. I mean, what's he talking about? He's talking explicitly about those things. Even if, even if he would deny, or his supporters would deny that that's what he really meant, what could he possibly be saying but those things? So, you know, that's, and when you look at his age and, and when he came up, I mean, that's that's exactly what he's referring to. He's referring to the good old days of, you know, his his youth when uh, police violence was not as openly challenged and controversial. So I wanted to show that stuff um, just explicitly, just to say this is what he's talking about. And with no subtext, this is just it. And like, the you know, the Kent State uh, shooting is one of the pictures like you mentioned. I mean, I remember thinking at the time that this stuff was going to happen under Trump if he was elected. And in, in some ways it did, you know, I mean, I, I was living in Portland, Oregon in the summer of 2020, and there were, you know, police, uh, well, not even police, but, you know, federal agents um, warring with police protesters every night. And it, it felt like we were one day away from them shooting and killing uh, someone on the streets. They were they were going around in unmarked vans, snatching people up, you know, like the type of stuff that was shocking, really, but, but also was kind of predictable because Trump was telegraphing it years in advance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and it seems to me like the whole point of, of, you know, comics in some in some sense, or at least the way that you approach it, is to try and communicate all of that in like an immediate visual way. Like all of the visual elements have to combine to convey this like explicit point that we can that can get lost within like everyday political discourse. Um, yeah. But, you know, I guess on the question of violence still, um, I wanted to ask how you dealt with having this particular panel removed from Instagram for supposedly promoting violence. Because this is a panel yeah. entirely about the the kind of like vectors of violence in the United States, especially in how it's rooted in a lot of white supremacist ideology. Um, was there something vindicating also maybe about being able to include it in the book, We Should Improve Society Somewhat, and like even address the fact that it had been removed uh, through the social media practice of like scrubbing the web for any, you know, objectionable images? Yeah, you know, it's... Um... I know it's uh, it's a it's a thing that plagues artists who do any work that's has shows violence or is political or depicts uh, sex. Um, you know those those three things are just flagged a lot by uh, social media companies and 
and and honestly, really, it's when people report it, um, it's, whether it's an algorithm or you know, at some point in the line, they do have a bunch of humans that review hundreds of cases all day. Uh, you know, if something just gets flagged a lot, then it gets taken down or it gets sent to a reviewer. So that's what happens with my political cartoons is that, you know, this stuff is being reported by people who don't like it. So I, you know, what is the basis for the takedown on this? Is it the guy shooting or is it the guy throwing the milkshake in his face? I, they don't, you never really get an answer, right? I mean, I guess it's depicting violence, but I mean, there's no one being torn apart by bullets or, you know, it's, it's not like the, it's not like the, the drawing you, you were talking about earlier from War is Boring or anything. Eventually, this happened a couple more times. And uh, there was a New York Times story about, about it that was focused on my work, but other, other people's work and this, this whole trend in social media. Um, where you know I, I did a comic on the Proud Boys. Again, it was it was actually before January sixth that I did it. It was basically saying that <laughs> some of these guys, you know, wanted to do violence to people or overthrow the government. Again, I'm I'm thinking about it. It wasn't any explicit violence in that one either depicted, but it was um, it was taken down for you know whatever incitement or whatever it is hate you know there's there's these weird guidelines about you know depiction of hate groups or promotion of hate groups that appears to include criticizing them it's very very strange stuff you know and obviously they don't do a good job of uh regulating the platforms anyway because they're overrun with misinformation and grifters and vaccine conspiracies and stuff like that so they're just not really well suited for uh for dealing with uh visual art i mean i think visual literacy is a big problem for them anyway and they're not really incentivized to uh be nuanced about it yeah like visual literacy would be one thing uh comics literacy is another i mean you know i i spoke yeah. with neil Cohn for my uh podcast and he, he has this book who understands comics that says like um we have this assumption about comics that it's sort of um, it's easier to read them that they're a kind of gateway to literacy for that reason, um, but he claims that you know uh, it actually actually takes a lot of experience to learn how to decode comics. But yeah, I mean, there's actually so many moments in we should improve society somewhat that I wanted to talk about, and I'm conscious of time, so I want to uh, you know uh, address that book, which is you know an incredibly uh, it's like this diverse array of different, you know, interventions and insights. It's a book that you introduce by saying, like, you can you can look at what I'm against and pretty easily figure out what I'm for. Um, and so I started like looking as I was reading the book for the things that you were advocating, uh, uh, using this prompt basically to guide me. Mm. And there, there's like one strip in particular where there there are these two kind of self-absorbed white liberals arguing, you know, over again, this kind of internal division within the left, arguing over whether class or racism should be front and center in progressive politics. And I gotta say, I, for, I felt, you know, I felt both seen and personally insulted um, by that <laughs> panel because, you know, I, I actually look a lot like one of the mansplainers in the strip. Um, and I wonder, no, like, sorry, man. it's all good. Um, you know, I, I guess like, are, is, Part of your goal or was was part of your goal to basically advocate for good faith debate 
uh, as a means of achieving something like a more equitable world? Is that yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a good way to put it. You know that that comic is touching on um, the debate that was happening and has basically almost perpetually happened since 2016. Um, and, you know, it goes back even further through all the elections. You always have um, liberals on the left criticizing each other or blaming each other for what happened. Uh, problem this time was that Donald Trump won. And there was years, really, of uh, grievances about that. And I think political rifts that permanently uh, affected a lot of people. And... I mean, I have plenty of my own opinions about it, but I, I, I don't devote my work to it. I think it's kind of alienating to people uh, to kind of constantly, uh, you know, forge your identity by who you hate that is very closely politically adjacent to you, which it, a lot of people do online, and, and, and they did a lot, especially in the aftermath of the 2016 election. So that's what I was going for in that strip. I mean, yeah, I think I think the way you put it is uh, advocating for more uh, more good faith arguments is is the best way to say it, really. And I mean, it's like it could be potentially very powerful, and yet because of the nature of like the media cycle or ecosystem, it's just like not even conceivable somehow. And there are so many moments I think in in the book that. Uh, uh, like hit on this, right? Like there's a panel on the cycle of outrage that social media encourages and this notion of like observing a social media hiatus. There's a flashback to the creation of the Bill of Rights where you're imagining these figures anticipating Tumblr and the collection of metadata to like influence elections. Um, since one of the things that you're skewering in the book is the rise of quote, online stupidity, I wanted to kind of come back to this question of the of the web and it's it's maybe you know uh, social effects by asking about um, you know how you use basically social media professionally and personally is it this kind of like devil's bargain where you understand it's a core part of a contemporary cartoonist arsenal but also fraught in all of these political and social like you know ver various ways that we now understand fully because of especially the Francis Hogan leaks that show Facebook knew uh, the kinds of social effects it was having. Uh, for sure, I mean, I would I would definitely say I have a very ambivalent relationship with social media. Um, it's it's what has made my career in a lot of ways. Uh, it's also, you know, completely exhausting to be on it and participate in it all the time. Um, it helps generate a lot of ideas. It's where I find a lot of my readers. I also know, you know, for me and every other creator I know, it's in, in people who aren't creators. I mean, it also is something that, you know, drives everybody crazy. Um, there, when you, when you can post online, you know, you have, you have no control over, uh, where it goes or what people do with it or what they say. Um, that's, you know, going back to the last question, I mean, that's why I didn't really want to do a ton of work focusing on this left liberal divide because, you know, it, it really just becomes fodder for argumentation. Um, and that's a lot of my work is kind of going after the way that we talk about things or interact with them online because that really is the way a lot of uh, people experience politics now. It's not the way that people maybe experience the effects of 
legislation or, or real politics, but it's it's how people engage with it, you know, arguing online uh, and posting. <laughs> and that has uh, been a really exhausting part of my career. You know, it, it's also just an extra thing that you have to do. You're not just asked to create, you have to, uh, to kind of, you know, be effective at social media. You really have to be on it. You have to be participating in it. Um, you know, right now I'm, I'm off in a lot of ways. I definitely, I, I kind of quit Twitter, uh, like for good, not, not forever, but I quit it, uh, with the intention of not posting anything until I come back with some sort of new project to announce. And then, you know, trying to change my relationship with it a little bit, uh, going forward, you know, just posting about my work and maybe not, you know, not engaging in arguments or not being, uh, even as vulnerable or open because once you get to a certain sort of follower threshold, you know, people will tell you that, you, you know, you basically can't post anything without someone, uh, jumping on you about it. And I'm not talking about posting a controversial or contrarian political opinion, you know, I'm talking about just pretty much anything, right? Just, um, so even though I don't like, uh, I don't, you know, part of me doesn't like what I just said about like, oh, I'm just being on to promote my work and nothing else. Like it feels kind of crass. I think it's like, I would rather put my energy into my work and have my work be what I have to say and not be, wasting a lot of my time uh, on social media anymore because god knows i did a lot of that in the last uh decade or so yeah i like that a lot i mean this idea of a very intentional use of social media um that is also you know uh, openly kind of self-reflexive self-critical um that that to me seems to me like the responsible position in 2021 <laughs> to to take yeah. regarding social media you know um, yeah, well, yeah. It, it seems like everyone's a little more uh, aware of the pitfalls of social media these days. I right. mean, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the the Facebook leaks and everything. I mean, mm -hmm. that's that that information is shouldn't be too surprising to everyone, right? I mean, we know that these places have been collecting our data and have a very cynical approach to uh, you know getting people to be angry or to click on things and to get their attention. I mean, you don't do that with, you know, that's, I think that's why um, a lot of misinformation has, has uh, proliferated on Facebook in particular, you know, and it's notorious for it because that's what gets people riled up and keeps them on the site so that Facebook can make money. I, you know, have been pretty skeptical about these companies since they, <laughs> since they came about, right? Well, you don't really, when they control major publishing, they control a, a publishing channel that basically everyone is paying attention to, you have to be on there to get anyone's attention. You know, even if it's about something that's not on there, like a, a book that you're, that you're selling or whatever. I mean, you have to have a presence on Facebook and Twitter. So yeah, I definitely hate, hate that aspect of it. Um, and uh, we could all collectively decide on a certain day that we're never going to go on those sites again. But you know, it isn't it isn't going to happen. Maybe it'll happen slowly over time, um, which would be great. But it seems like at this point they're they're kind of baked in. 
Yeah, I mean, and this is the this is the real kind of question now is like, what is the horizon here, you know? And and it's interesting now to kind of diagnose social media's social effects in light of things like the capital siege and the deplatforming or demonetizing of, of things like Parler and this this you know this insurrection that basically happened um, in part through online organizing. I mean, there's a a moment in we should improve society somewhat where you talk about how you personally reached quote the height of artistic achievement circa 2020 online capitalism the ubiquitous meme an unpaid and nonetheless or but nonetheless exalted cultural position in which a work of art has perfectly captured some aspect of the zeitgeist a zeitgeist and allows people to easily respond uh instead of thinking of something of their uh, of their own to say as you put it um so like that uh, uh, acknowledgement combined with the way that you talk about having your character Mr. Gotcha stolen and repurposed got me thinking about the documentary Feels Good Man, uh, which is about yeah. the you know the misappropriation of Matt Fury's Pepe the Frog drawing. Um, you joke about that you know pretty consequential bit of property theft in We Should Improve Society somewhat by showing World War II troops speculating that there's no way frog memes will be a Nazi thing by the time we're old. Um, like I'm assuming here that you're you're familiar with uh, the theft of Matt Fury's Pepe. Um, and I wonder here, like in terms of using social media very intentionally, to what extent you fault Fury? I mean, there's always going to be theft within meme culture. That's what memes sort of are in some sense is a parasitic sort of, thing um but what is different in the context of like diagnosing social media and recognizing that some of those parasites are white supremacists and who you know they're going to use these seemingly silly safe images to perpetuate hate speech do you feel like matt fury should have protected his character better that's certainly one of the arguments in feels good man is that it was largely his inability to protect the circulation of images online that led to this proliferation of of hate memes do you see it that way or is that simplistic i haven't seen that documentary but i do know you know a little bit about um his situation for sure i know that he did eventually uh sue some people and um i think he may have even sued alex jones and got them to stop you know using it on something something like that uh but it's but it's hard man you know once something takes off um you can't put it back in the bottle it's very hard i mean he's tried uh, a lot to you know reclaim pepe and i think you know he still uses the character when he does boys club so i don't think it just and, and then it was kind of appropriated too by like hong kong protesters who were who were using it um and not in a white supremacist context you know is it it's just this very surreal landscape that we exist in now i mean you know there was nothing inherently uh wrong with his original image i mean i think it was just the the frog's head saying feels good man that just sort of got around and then all of a sudden people started making all these variations of it and it was flourishing on you know 4chan and places like that where there are a lot of uh right-wing white supremacist type people and they just and then they they did with it what they did you know i mean it's like i think every artist sort of lives in fear that you know you don't even want to talk about it because you don't want to speak it into existence if you say oh i don't want i don't want nazis to uh you know 
appropriate something for my comic and then they, they you know they'll do it intentionally to troll you so yeah <laughs> totally yeah this yeah, is the thing uh, right like it's it is out of your control uh and that's why i see it as sort of like a the the narrative of the documentary is sort of simplistic in that sense right they talk to certain artists and say like you know fury took two uh, lackadaisical an attitude around intellectual property and so on and this was the result but really um it's it's there's something else going on right um i think and and it's about this kind of uh openness to misappropriation that's characteristic of the web and like in that context yeah. i wanted to ask you about mr gotcha like it's a character that hit on something and it, that evolved really out of a desire to identify a trend within you know political you know, punditry, uh, you know, or, or dialogue toward ad hominem attacks on people for like perceived hypocrisy, right? So I think with, you know, uh, Pepe the Frog, the reason that became a troll's mascot is that it was an embodiment of apathy, basically. Uh, Mr. Gotcha is an embodiment of something else, uh, a certain kind of moral supremacy, or, or I don't even know if you could maybe define it in your own terms, but you know, you're you're in your work. You're insisting that hypocrisy is bad, but part of the point of Mr. Gotcha seems to be that we're all kind of vulnerable to the accusation of hypocrisy to some extent because we participate in society, right? Um, yeah. Is that the basically the point of that character? And I guess, like, I want to ask, like, in the context of polarized political discourse, is it the case now that hypocrisy kind of doesn't mean anything if you can accuse anyone of hypocrisy at any moment? I've been forced to think about this. Um, I was almost going to call it a meme, but it's actually not a meme. It's just a panel that I drew. It's a, uh, it's a comic I drew, but now it's a meme. Um, but it doesn't really get uh, changed a lot. Some people do, but really it just gets used as kind of like a reaction, a reaction meme. Uh, so, you know, to start out, what I was doing was countering an argument that a pretty lazy argument online, which is just like, oh, you, you know, you use an iPhone and yet you're criti criticizing capitalism. You know, and the counter to that is basically that you're saying, you know, we should improve society somewhat. And the, and the comic goes through all these different, uh, well, it starts in the present and then it goes to, goes into the past where you end up in the medieval time with Mr. Gotcha popping out of the well. But that is essentially the argument that has uh, always been you know, put forth in politics and then argued against by uh, the people who are advocating the status quo, um, which is either, you know, you're doing too much, too, too much, too fast change, you know, you participate in the system as it is. Um, and you're, and you're, and you're a hypocrite. I mean, I think that uh, the right is actually onto something with that argument. Like the reason why they use it is because I do think that the right is fundamentally aware that uh, there are systems of exploitation in place uh, in the United States and around the world. And that's what our society functions on. And they care a lot less or they think it's acceptable. And they're saying, look, you accept it too. What are you doing? You're not, you're not going out and blowing up an iPhone factory. You're, all you're doing is posting online. They want you to just accept uh the system as it is and not and they're they're trying to sort of like defang your argument by just saying well you're a hypocrite you're participating in it too but that you know that's not really the argument the argument is we should change we should change this and and we lack the ability to just you know universally or unilaterally 
change it. You know, like I can decide to not use an iPhone because I don't want to participate in that. But, you know, people who go too far in that direction are making this weird moral argument that they're, they, you know, they're pure, they're not going to do it. And the other people who do, who are doing it are all uh, sick and depraved, but that's not going to change anything on a systemic level. Right. So sorry, I've definitely thought about this uh, meme yeah. way too much. No, and, and this is exactly what the meme or, or the panel communicates. We can't give an account of our own ambivalence, our own feeling of being vexed by having to participate in an unequal, exploitative you know, society because of um, an individualistic kind of culture of, of discourse that says, ultimately, what matters is what you individually are doing and whether it is pure, ethical, and so on. Like, um, yeah, I think it's a go-nowhere argument. Um, and one that we're we're kind of caught in. There's a moment in the book where you you convey this really relatable sense of political fatigue. Basically, just you know you're overcome by everything being bad, like you were saying, like just engaging with politics and feeling like it's just all about just grief and anxiety and and misery. Like I love, for example, your strip on the chaotic nature of the financial system. You know, and this is a this is a system that we do have a film like The Big Short to understand which uses comedy to try and convey something really complex in human terms. And I guess I want to ask, like, in a context where, you know, even economists are admitting that we might be approaching things like an inflation crisis, but they don't know why or what inflation, how it really works. I guess I wanted to ask whether you see an increase across the board in comics that try to convey the complexity of finance, capitalism, and the money system. Mm. Well, I don't know if I've seen an increase in comics trying to do that or not, but, you know, with this, um, with that comic, I was almost trying to, you know, elide uh, concrete explanations of stuff. And because that's where, you know, people always get tripped up and just sort of portray the financial system as how I think it is in a lot of ways, which is uh, complex to the point of chaotic. And, you know, you you always have, uh, economists and uh, people who uphold the system explaining uh, why everything <laughs> is uh, operates this way and that it's the best uh, the best system and not generally predicting any of the collapses in advance you know like the 2008 housing crisis being the biggest one uh, that I can think of where you know after the fact of course everybody says we shouldn't be you know slicing up mortgage loans and packaging them into other financial products and then selling those as AAA graded uh, uh, things. But then, you know, while we're doing it, it's actually, uh, it's actually a okay. So who, who knows what's going to come next? You know, recently they were talking about whether or not we should be minting a trillion dollar coin to deal with the deficit. Yeah. I um, love this idea. We, <laughs> yeah. Right. I've read, you know, stuff for and again, who knows, man. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it sounds nuts, Right. I don't think anyone, I think that the truth is that no one actually knows who could do it. It could be fine. You could do it. It could trigger something. Um, we, I, I, I don't, I certainly don't think the, uh, many of the people who are paid to know these things actually know the answer because I don't think there's a, there's a definitive one. I think only after uh, we experience these crises and changes are we able to, you know, retroactively sort of put it into a narrative and then say, Oh, the, this happened because we were clearly doing something that was completely ir irrational and uh, not 
good for most members of society, except for you know people who were bundling mortgages and selling them off to the the next person. The, they did fine, but not everybody else. Yeah, I, well said. You know, I think there's like, if, from my perspective, there's there's something like almost mystical about the cult of belief that Wall Street like represents, and you know, people like Max Haven. Um, you know, who I've interviewed for the podcast, talk about how there's this like priestly caste of econo uh, economists who are mostly there to reinforce belief in the system, sort of, you know, what you were saying there. Um, yeah. I want to, you know, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I just really have one more question. I really like the way that in uh, We Should Improve Society Somewhat, you're, you're captioning the panels uh, and kind of letting the reader into your thought process for how you created the panels. Uh, and at a certain point, you're, you admit that Trump's election stumped you, that you didn't have anything funny to say for once. And for this one kind of big splash panel, you opted for some inspirational defiance. Um, your use in that panel of like an earnestly inspirational tone is, you know, not something that's characteristic of your work in general. And you talk about the fact that it generally is not the job of a political cartoonist to be sentimental or inspirational in those ways. I guess I'm wondering, like, in terms of your future work, whether you're hoping to explore more of that earnest stuff, like the emotional side of things. A little bit of yes and a little bit of no. So what I would say is, first, you know, I'm actually gravitating toward doing some, uh, like, genre work, you know. I... Um, Right now, I'm writing, co-writing a comic book series that hasn't been announced yet, so I can't really, you know, say much about it. But it's a creator-owned thing, um, sort of sci-fi, dystopian, uh, ultra-violent political thing. And you know, a lot of elements of my work are, will be will be present in it. I mean, it's full of it's full of satire and social critique, but it's trying to do something. It, yeah, I mean, it, it, in some ways it's ham-fisted and obvious, but it's in other ways it is trying to be a little more expansive in the themes and what it's actually talking about. You know, it's not about what's in the news this week. It's about broader themes in society. And, you know, I have another project that isn't uh, fully greenlit, but is hopefully going to happen with like um, some a previously established character that I'm very uh, excited that I hope I get the opportunity to write in which I'll be doing some of the same thing. So, you know, the, I don't know that I would call these works earnest. Um, I think that they, they care, they have the same sort of tone of satire as I've done in a lot of my work, but um, they'll be a little bit less, uh, less, didactic and less oriented around the news and and then long term you know i don't have any uh immediate plans to do a, a non-fiction book but i mean i will at some point for sure and you know i aspire to the level of people like durf and joe sacco in the, in the work and i think in that you know i do want to portray reality and nuance and complexity and also you know not not neutrality, but um, not 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 be preachy in in the way that political cartoons can be, but you know, uh, be illuminating in the way that the best sort of nonfiction journalism can be. 
Wow. Well, that is super exciting. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm always excited to talk to cartoonists because I think in another life that would have been my preferred like career. You know, it does take an enormous amount of time, a, a ridiculous yeah. commitment. Um, and it's it's something I'm always fascinated to hear people's like story around how they fell into it. Um, but a lot of people, it seems like it's just they've lived and breathed it from very young age. Uh, so I'm really excited to see what you produce from this point on. Um, yeah, yeah, thanks, man. I, uh, you know, the, these projects, like they, I said, they take time, even though I'm writing it, somebody else has to draw it. So I don't even think they'll be announced until next year, but you know, there are things that I've been working on slowly over time and they're finally starting to happen. Well, good luck with it all. And thanks so much for making the time. All right, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.